0: Thank you, Caleb, for that. Uh, I, I know it's it's warm in here this evening, and if you were here all day yesterday, maybe you're you're feeling like you need a bit of a, a wiggle break. Um, those were appropriate on Saturday, but I feel like it may be inappropriate now. But you can certainly, um, if you see, I was thinking about James five. You know, if you see your friend uh, uh, or your brother wander, you're just seek to bring them back. And and if you see that your your next door neighbour wandering to sleep, I think. Bringing them back from the sleep to the truth would be perfectly appropriate, and you can help each other if it's getting too warm. We're in Genesis chapter 48 this evening. Thanks to Killer for reading that. Uh, And here I think we're going to look at this question of, how does an old man prepare for death? How does an old man prepare for death? That's really what we're focusing in this evening. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we think about this together. Father, we thank you for how you've been speaking through your word. We're so thankful for this series in Genesis as we've traced your call on Abraham and his descendants, how you've called them to be your people. And we are thankful that you're still calling people to follow you. Father, we are thankful that the promises that were made way back then still stand, and that you are building your church And so, Lord, this evening as we come as a group of your people, we pray that, again, we would hear you speak, that you would equip us, prepare us, shape us for godly living. And for those who are here and are not in Christ, Father, might tonight be the night when you wake them up and they come to spiritual life. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen first Sunday in September, uh, and so uh, many of you are back from your summer holidays. I don't know if you were traveling too far. Maybe you uh, did get somewhere. Maybe you were heading off to, I don't know, Italy or Ireland, or maybe you just made it into your back garden for a few days and enjoyed a a change of routine, and that is all good, isn't it? Maybe you spent some time in a a summer hammock. Maybe you were sipping coffee. Maybe you were lying in a lounger. But if you're doing any of those things, I wonder if you do any summer reading. Put up your hand if you did any summer reading. A few, great, okay, well, I, I did some summer reading, and um, this is one of, one of my top books um, from my summer reading, it's called Facing the Last Enemy, Death and the Christian, Death and the Christian, and I know what you're thinking, Jeff, you know how to enjoy your summer, <laughs> um, I'm not sure what the, the top reads were around the pool, I, I doubt this made it into it, and yet, maybe it should, because it was an incredibly helpful book incredibly helpful, especially when it comes to thinking about preparing ourselves for death. And really, that's what we're going to think about tonight as we look at this section together in Genesis 48. We want to think about what are some of the lessons from this man as he prepares for his death. As we come to this section, we'll see that he really has much to teach us, much to teach us. First thing I think we see is this. As this man approaches his death, he remembers the promises of God. At the end of the the last chapter, Jacob had already got Joseph to promise to bury him uh, in Canaan to carry his body out of Egypt back to the promised land. He knew that his death was approaching and he wanted to make sure that that would take place. That was really, really important to him. And you may remember how it kind of ended in the last chapter. It said, the time drew near that Israel must die. He must die. He knew that this was coming. His death was imminent. And he had known that his days on this earth were very much coming to an end. And so he was sure to give clarity. He wanted great clarity to be given with what was to be done with his body Because what we do with our bodies is significant, isn't it? For Jacob, it was a sign that he was trusting in God's promises regarding the promised land, that they really would come true, that his death was not the end of God fulfilling his promises. And for believers today, it's still important what we do with our bodies. What we do with our bodies is significant, and what we do with our bodies after death is also significant. I think right throughout the Bible, we see a practice and a pattern of burial for believers. There's something significant as believers are placed back in the ground like a seed planted, waiting, expectant of the day when their body will be raised to life. And so Jacob had confirmed his burial plans with his son. He'd given them so that there was great clarity. And although death was near at the end of the last chapter, It wasn't that Joseph was spending all of his time sitting with his father. Joseph was a man with many responsibilities and lots of things that had to be held in tension. And maybe many of you know that experience uh, where you've had to kind of have this tension of, of wanting to sit with a loved one, but also having many other duties and responsibilities that needed to be tended to. But word reaches Joseph, doesn't it? Word reaches Joseph that his father is ill. I think we can assume that what's saying here is really ill. The point of death was almost there. And it's at that point that Joseph heads back in with his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. Verse two, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of people, peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob is on his deathbed, isn't he? He's on his deathbed. He was dying, and yet he was not dead. He was not dead. And so he uses the life that is still within to speak the promises of God. Do you see that? And he speaks of the encounter that he had with God and God's promises, the promises that God had given him. And notice what he emphasizes. He emphasizes the action of God Almighty. I wanted you spot that. God was the one who appeared to him, God was the one who blessed him, and God was the one who was going to deliver on his promises that had been made to him. Listen to it. I will make you, this is what God said, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. It was God who said, I will make you a company of peoples. And it was God who will give the land. It's the land of Canaan to his offspring as an everlasting possession. Only God Almighty can make such promises and deliver upon them. Only God Almighty can make such promises and make sure that they come to pass. And so as Jacob nears death, He's no longer bitter, no longer bitter in the way that he seemed to be back when he came before Pharaoh, uh, those 17 years earlier. What was it he had said in his summary of his life at that point? He said, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. But now, uh, these years later, he looks back over his days, and he seems to have regained his focus. He seems to have a much better perspective on his life, a different perspective and we've seen that with Jacob so often. It seems to he flips back and forth between what we think is a godly view and a not so godly view. The old man and the new man. And even in his name, it seems to flip between Jacob and Israel. Israel, the new name that God had given to him, and it seems to flip back and forth. But here he is, as death is approaching. What's on his mind? The promises of God. And as he dwells in the promises of God. And what God has promised to do, surely it must have really encouraged him, encouraged him and, and given him confidence in those last hours. Here he is, he's an old man, an old man who is frail. It's taken almost all of his energy just to sit up in bed and get himself sitting up in order to speak to his son and his grandchildren. And he remembers what God has promised to do. This God. God Almighty, he was able to deliver. This God, God Almighty, was not weak. This God, God Almighty, he was not old and frail. Now the promises of God still stood. He could trust in them. He could bank on them. And so as he approached death, it was the strong promises of God that flooded into his mind and prepared him for what was to come. This God, God Almighty, he could trust him. And because he trusted in the promises of God, the faith that God was he, he said he was, and that he would do what he said he would do, Joseph goes on to, or Jacob goes on to bless Joseph's sons. We see that in verse five, don't we? And your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before, you came, before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Maybe maybe this is a little bit, that seems strange, okay? As we read it, we think what's really going on here? Jacob comes along and he says to Joseph, Joseph, I'm gonna take two of your sons as my own. And um, well, the rest of your children, you can keep them. I don't know what the parents in here are thinking. You might be thinking, well, I'm quite happy to keep my own children. Thank you, what's going on here? But what's really happening is Jacob is not usurping Joseph's role as their father. It's not really like that. It's not like he's no longer going to be their father, but rather he's taken on these two sons in terms of his inheritance. And so it seems that these sons of Joseph are going to step in and receive what we might say is the appropriate blessing that would have been for Reuben and Simeon. You see them listed in the text, don't we? Because actions have consequences. And because of their sin, that we've already covered in the weeks gone by, they are not going to receive the blessing that they would have otherwise received. First Chronicles 5 gives us a bit of an insight into this. He says, Reuben missed out on the birthright, even though he was the oldest, because he defiled his father's sofa, his father's couch, his father's bed, and so these two sons of Joseph, they, they step in, uh, taking the equal, equal status of their uncles. And they are blessed like sons. They receive the firstborn birthright. But you see, it's because Jacob believes the promises of God that leads him to this action. He, he's going to bless these sons, these two grandchildren, because God has made the promise to Abraham, to Abraham and Isaac and then to Jacob and their family. But I want you to notice something else. Notice that the promises don't negate the pain. Do you spot that? They don't negate the pain that Jacob still feels. We see it in verse seven. Jacob feels the sorrow of the loss of his wife, Rachel, who had been buried in the land of Canaan. That's not insignificant, that it notes that she was buried in the land of Canaan. That's important. But we sense his pain, don't we? As he speaks to Joseph and to the grandchildren who have come through this wife, Rachel, it seems only natural that the pain and the sorrow of the loss come all bubbling up again, back to the surface. And so there's a tension in chapter 48. A real life in a fallen, broken world, and all of the pain that comes along with that, and it's held really tightly together with the promises of God. And so we've got pain and we've got promises and they're held tightly together in this passage. And that's our story, isn't it? We know something of that story, each of us here. Some of us feel it more keenly than others, but we know the reality of pain alongside the promises. Pain alongside the promises and we must hold them tightly together. Verse eight. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they, they are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Let's just pause there for a second before we get to the, the blessing itself. I wonder as we read those verses, did you get a, a, a sense of familiarity, a sense of familiarity with what was happening as we, as we read those verses? Here the sons come for blessing from the old man whose eyesight is poor. There's an identification as to who they are. And then the blessing of the firstborn is given to the younger, does that sound familiar? Do you think you've come across that before in the book of Genesis? It's not the first time that this has taken place, has it? And surely for Jacob, there was a sense of familiarity. Sounds very much like his own story. And for us this evening, it's a reminder, isn't it? It's a reminder that God works in ways that often we don't expect. Often God's ways are not following the, the expectation and pattern uh, that we might have. Because Jacob here is really just a mouthpiece for God, isn't he? That's what's taking place. As he pronounces the blessings, they're ultimately God's words. And so there is a hand that is at work behind the hands of this man as he reaches out and blesses the two sons of Joseph, directing them so that the blessing would go to who God wanted the blessing to go to. God often works in surprising ways, doesn't he? God often works in surprising ways. So how does this old man prepared for death? Well, he looks to the promises of God. But secondly, I want you to see this. He remembers the character of God. Look at the testimony of the character of God that's revealed in these uh, blessings that's given uh, to Joseph. Verse 15, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. You see, the God of Jacob was a God who was faithful, wasn't he? He was a God who was faithful. This is the God who had walked with his father and his grandfather. This is the God who had made promises to them, and this is a God who had kept his promises. He was delivering on his promises. He had been faithful to his people, despite the fact that sometimes it seemed that the people themselves were were determined to undermine the promises of God. We've seen that the whole way through Genesis, didn't we? It felt like time and time again, God's people were almost trying to pull the, the rug from under his feet, and yet God delivers. He delivers on his promises. This God is faithful, isn't he? And then look at the next line. The God who has been My shepherd, my shepherd all my life long to this day. This is an incredible testimony, isn't it? It's a personal testimony. Here he is declaring to Joseph, his son, and to his grandchildren that this God is his God. He's declaring his personal faith, isn't he? Telling his his son and his grandchildren, this is my God This is my God. He has been my shepherd. Now, the language of shepherd is is something that we're really familiar with, isn't it, when we think about God? Lots of us here would be able to repeat the, the 23rd Psalm from memory. And so the idea of God being our shepherd, I mean, that doesn't surprise us, does it? And yet, we have to realize that Psalm 23 had not yet been penned. Hadn't been penned. Jacob. The shepherd himself is the first one to refer here to God as his shepherd. This is the first time we come across God as shepherd in the Bible. And he knows this shepherd personally, doesn't he? He could have echoed those words in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And he attributes to knowing the shepherd's hand, caring for him throughout his life. What a different view as he looks back now. He says... I, I now look back and I can see that the shepherd has been with me the whole way through. Remember, previously, what was he saying? Few and evil are my days, and that was his focus. Now he's saying, I, I can see the shepherd, and he has been at work. He has been at work. The shepherd who had made him lie down in green pastures, the shepherd who had led him on the paths of righteousness the shepherd who had been with him in the dark valleys, this is the shepherd that he knew. Jacob knew the shepherd, he knew him personally, and he was share, sure to share that with his family. If you're a Christian here this evening, I wondered, do those who are closest to you know? Do they know where you are? Do they know that you really are a believer, that you're putting your trust in Jesus, that you really are trusting in Jesus as your good shepherd? Whenever you die, that's going to be really helpful for those closest to you to know the reality of your spiritual state. They can bring to mind those times when you talk to them them of of the, the relationship that you had with Jesus, your good shepherd, the one whom you were putting your trust in, so that they know that whenever you die, you will have gone to be with him in paradise, and that will bring them great comfort amidst the sorrow and the grief. I wonder, if you shared that with those closest to you? Do they know that you know the good shepherd? Can you say he is my shepherd? Well, Jacob, he testifies to know God personally, doesn't he? And he testifies to God's redeeming work. Jacob is a, a man with a, a colorful story. He is a man who has sinned much over the years, and yet the Bible doesn't try to cover that up, does it? It doesn't try to whitewash that and pretend that never happened. No, it's very real. Gives us a very realistic picture of the man. And yet he is a man who is redeemed. He's redeemed. And perhaps you're, you're here and your story's pretty messy. It's pretty messy. Perhaps you're here and you're only too aware of your sin and the shame that comes along with that. Well, look at the story of Jacob. You need to know that you too can have peace with God you can experience that this evening no matter what your, your past history has been. You can know redemption by believing in Jesus, by confessing your sin to him. You too can know the good shepherd and know that he will carry you through. Here is a man who has known God. His testimony points to that. Here is a man who has known the promises of God and is trusting in the promise of God even as he dies. He is turning to them. He is trusting in them. He is mulling them over in his mind. Bless the boys and in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. These boys are to be a blessing, aren't they? They are to grow into a, a multitude. And that's exactly what you see happening as you read on into the story and into Exodus. Exodus. So Jacob blesses the sons. Now, what's really interesting is that whenever you read Hebrews, Hebrews eleven twenty one, 21, this is the particular part of Jacob's life that it zooms in on. Listen to these words from Hebrews 11. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff of all of the different aspects of Jacob's life, the leaving of his uh, his parents, the wrestling with God, this is the part of the story that Hebrews pulls out and zooms in on and focuses in on. Here he blesses the boys as he worships God in, in in his final hours. And this is an example of the man's faith. Because Jacob, in blessing the boys, shows that he is reaching out, that he is grabbing hold of those promises, the promises of God, even in the face of death. And isn't that what we want to be said of us? By faith, even in our dying hours and moments, we were trusting in, reaching out, grabbing hold of the promises, believing them to be true. How does this old man prepare for death? Well, he looks to the promises of God. He remembers the character of God. And thirdly, he looks forward to the blessing of God. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, the younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will, be, will pronounce blessings, saying God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Here, as Joseph watches on, he he thinks his dad's got mixed up. Why is he not giving the blessing to the firstborn? It's his question, isn't it? Surely he has got mixed up. And we're told that it it even displeased him as he watched on. And yet, as he, you know, says to his father, I think you've got mixed up here. His father is really pastorally and yet firm and saying, no, there's no mix up here. He knew what he was doing. And when it comes to how God chooses to work, I know that sometimes we can find that hard. We can find it frustrating and that God doesn't work in the way that we we long for him to work. Sometimes he blesses in ways that, well, we wish it was different. We think, if I was doing it, I wouldn't do it this way. God, what are you doing? We've got lots of questions with regards to how God is working. And, And especially often when it comes to salvation, We struggle with with some questions. Why does God save some people and, and not save others? And yet, what do we say? Well, we must say that all that God does is right. He is God. He knows what he is doing. We do not know better. We do not have a better view than God. We do not have a better way than God. And there's a sense in which Joseph must just accept that. He must accept that he is not God and God is the one who is making these, these statements through his father. Look at how God has redeemed the, even the darkest moments of, of Joseph's life. Surely he would not have chosen that path. And yet, as he would look back, he too would see that the good shepherd had been at work. The good shepherd had been redeeming even the darkest moments. And in a sense, we must also accept the blessing of God in the way that God brings that about, not demanding that we know a better way. But as you you look at this blessing, we also see that this is a future blessing. This is a blessing that was to come, isn't it? Jacob had known much blessing from God in his own life, but there was still much of the promise that still had to to come to pass. In a sense, you might say, there was the now and there was the not yet. Yes, he had enjoyed God's blessings in many ways, and yet, well, there was more to come, wasn't there? There was more to come. And isn't that the story for the believer? This is not home. We said last week, we have one eye on the promised land. We have one eye on that heavenly city. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. This is not supposed to feel like home yet. And then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers, whereover I have given you rather than your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Jacob is about to die, isn't he? He's about to die. It's It's about to happen. And what does he want to leave in the ears of his children and of his grandchildren? He cannot get away from the promises of God. He just keeps going back to the promises of God. Isn't that what he does? It's as if it's as if that's what filled his mind and so when he keeps speaking he keeps going back to the promises reminding them of the promises of god the assurance that god will do what he said he will do god will be with you god will bring you again to the land of your fathers and then he shares that here's one little bit of the promised land this mountain slope that he himself had conquered from the amorites Joseph, you, you may have everything that you can imagine here in Egypt. You're second in command. You, you can get whatever you want. But remember, this is not home. This is not home. The slope points to the promises of God and the fact that he would deliver upon them. He would deliver. Some of you this evening are older. and Perhaps in one sense, in the, the normal pattern of life, you know that you're coming near the end. There's a reality that none of us know when the day is that we're coming to the end of our life, and yet, in the general pattern of how things happen, once we have enjoyed those three score years and 10, well, then we we know that we are in the later stages of life. And so my question to you this evening is, do you know God? Can you say, yes, I know him as my shepherd? That is really important. Really important. And if you can, well then, how are you seeking to use these days? How are you seeking to use them? Because in God's good providence, you're not dead yet. God has given you life and breath for a reason. And So how are we to use it? Are we seeking to use it to to pass on the faith to the next generation. We spent so much time thinking about that yesterday. That is one of of those responsibilities and duties for each of us. But for those who are older, think about the the privilege and responsibility you have to seek to pass on the faith to the next generation. There is work for you to do. Don't don't think that in these later years that, that you just sit about and there's nothing of purpose and value. That is so far from the truth. Think of the people that you're praying for Think of the people that you're seeking to share your personal testimony as you look back and say, look, I have seen God being faithful in my own life. Share with your children, your grandchildren, your next door neighbors, those whom you have close relationships with, about what God has done in your life, how he has redeemed you and rescued you and saved you, and how as you look back, you can see his hand at work. As we approach the older years, we have so much responsibility So much work to be doing, praying that those who come after us, that they too might be able to say, I know the good shepherd. I know the good shepherd. I too know the hope of the land to come and the new creation. When it comes to funeral arrangements and and burial plans, sometimes it can feel like it's morbid to plan those things out. And yet seems that again and again as we come across funerals and burial plans in Genesis, those who were heading towards death wanted wanted that even in their death to point people to God. Even in their death to point people to God. That through their funeral and, and all that would happen at that point, people would say, Do you know, this is a wonderful testimony to God's goodness in their life. Wouldn't it be amazing that if people were to gather for your funeral, that someone might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, their own good shepherd? It'd be a wonderful thing, isn't it? Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who lays down his life for his sheep, what will he do? He will bring his sheep through the shadow of death and into his presence, into paradise. That's our hope, isn't it, as believers this evening? And so for the Christian who's approaching death, Jacob points to trusting in God's promises. He he points to the character of God and, and reminding ourselves as to who this God is. And he also points at the blessing that is to come, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And if you're here this evening and you're not a believer, well, don't you want to have that confidence don't you want to know what's to come don't you want to have that sure and certain hope like jacob you can but trusting in the good shepherd jesus to carry you through let's pray Let's use these words from Psalm 39 as our prayer. O Lord, make me know my ends. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Father, might our trust this evening be in you. And might how we shape each of our days reflect the fact that we know that death is coming, that either death is coming or Jesus is gonna return, and that we must be ready. We must be ready. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to use the days that we have to testify of Christ, to testify of the good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep, to the knowledge of forgiveness of sin, to how we've been redeemed, Lord, might we point the next generation to knowing and loving you. So Lord, help us to use each of our days wisely. Help us to have perspective that these days, however long they are, are short. And help us to use them well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.